0: Back in uh, 2000, it was about 2011, it was, I think, February, March time frame, I was experimenting with something called um, leveraged options, and uh, by then I had about two million dollars personally in the bank, and uh, I had gone through, you know, and obtained my master's in uh, business, in international business, and had taken gobs and gobs of financial, finance and accounting classes. And um, one of the things that I ended up um, you know, having a little bit of a difficult time with in understanding was not just options, but options leveraged against foreign exchange. I had a hard time mentally grasping what uh, how the foreign exchange system worked. You know, so basically, it's uh, in a nutshell: um, every currency is more or less a market-oriented device however these are paired devices what that means is specifically the dollar versus the euro um there's a a system in between that exchange and everything that basically says the dollar against the euro is the paired device, so it's not necessarily a market-oriented device where you can buy a um, buy a dollar. Um, well, you can, you know, effectively buy dollars, you know, but uh, what you're doing is you're basically buying it um, in the pairs. The exchange is what you're buying it against. So, um, and really in really, and uh, th- what that means is. Um, you can buy commodities. You know, for instance, you could buy soybeans. You can buy um, grain uh, or different things, uh, pig uh, pig knuckles or something like that. I, I'm not too sure of different varying commodities. You could also buy stocks. You know, so you can buy Intel stock. You can buy um, you know whatever you want to in different stocks and everything. But for, uh, currencies work very differently. So by then, um, I had done options for trading uh, for stocks and everything, that was pretty easy. Put something called put-and-call options and everything. But I had never bought a foreign exchange exchange before, and I, I didn't really understand it fully, so I was really kind of wary about doing it so i 'd always bought currencies, you know, so I had money you know i, I shouldn 't say I' bought currencies. I went to different countries and I paid for things in the local currency by basically exchanging things from my currency to the local currency and bought things and had and carried different currencies around the world and everything. but I had never actually participated in the foreign exchange system now at this point, I was about maybe six months out from you know being let go um, by my uh, being Um, out of my contract with the NSA. So it was October of 2011 that I'd officially be done with them. But prior to that, uh, you know, here I am just basically saying, okay, you know, um, by this point I'm a little bit wary about actually receiving the money that they owe me. I mean, at this point they owe me $8 million. I've got $2 million in the bank at this point, and, uh, you know, I'm just like going, okay, I'm tired of working my balls off and everything, and and what's a different way to do things? And I had really been looking at people like Warren Buffett and, uh, you know, people that were actually in the investment community, particularly investment bankers and that kind of stuff. And um, I realized that they they had a great deal of power in being able to influence the world and the economy and that kind of stuff, probably more so than Bill Gates. You know, despite the fact that Bill Gates may on paper be the, you know, worth the most in the world and everything, the fact is, you know, he wasn't the one that was moving and shaking economies and actually making changes on a worldwide basis. He was providing a a good, you know, and that good, those goods were, you know, (laughs) They were definitely, you know, great. Don't get me wrong. Windows and Word and all that stuff, you know, has longevity in contrast, you know, to the the products and services that uh, you know somebody like uh, Warren Buffett might offer, which, in this point, is, in my opinion, is something is something akin to smoke and mirrors. It's it's air that they're selling, you know, and the air that uh, that you breathe is the is something called currencies. So. I had been really wanting to get into that, so it was about the February-March uh, time frame of 2011. A- at that point, I had actually taken some money and put it into Ameritrade. And um, prior to this point, I had money in what Charles Schwab, um, ETrade, trade um, all these different accounts like that, but uh, this was the first time I decided to actually... Hm. Hello. Great. I probably lost a. whole <laughs> recording session today. That's not good. Yeah, I think I lost like an hour's worth of discussion concerning stock options and foreign exchange and oh, all kinds of funky stuff and how I made a million dollars in a day. Uh, oh, uh, I'll talk about it sometime else if I if indeed I did lose it, but according to this, it's got zero seconds recorded for it. So, in any case, um, well, that sucks. Yeah, what I did was I got into foreign exchange systems and, you know, how... Just to recap, um, I put $2,500 into uh, Ameritrade. Account and I ended up uh, taking that, and I create. I have two personal rules, you know, when it comes down to investments, and uh, even with uh, I have one primary rule with gambling: don't take what I can't afford to lose. Um, it's a little bit different with investing. Um, the money that I put in is an investment. And I only take out when I have recouped the investment um, in an investment and and multiplied that times two. Um, So, or I take a loss on it. So, basically, it's just like, uh, and there's other things that that go in there. But in any case, uh, one day back in 2011 and everything, I invested on foreign exchange, and I made quite a bit of money. Um, Altogether, uh, I was at $2 million personal uh, assets by that point, and uh, as I ended up uh, taking the money that I had, I took $2,500 to put it into an investment at this point, and at that point, I made, in a literal sense, you know, a million dollars in one day based on you know, can't really say luck because it had been, you know, something I had done lots and tons and tons and tons of research on. So, it's not that I got lucky, it's just that I got in at a time where I thought the dollar would rise against dull currencies, um, notably the euro, and at that point I took advantage of Meritrade's uh, uh four hundred to one leveraging, um and I made damn sure I didn't get into uh you know that I you know had basically my entire strategy was based on making sure that uh, I wouldn't leverage uh, something called um uh it's not credit, it's not debt. Having a hard time thinking I just got done watching Orville tonight. Mm What do they call it when they extend out... Oh, this is... I just talked about it earlier today too, man. Credit line. No, it's not credit line because it's not... They don't uh, regard it like like that. Oh, what do they call it? Margin. That's what it's called. Didn't have to look that one up. It's close. Um, so, anyways, uh, margin is effectively this one, kind of one and the same thing as as credit. And uh, I had that's actually one of the personal rules that I have is you know for investment is don't use margin money. Something I learned way way long ago you know, with a uh, investment and everything is it's so alluring, it's so tempting, particularly when you get a good tip or something like that about a stock or something that uh is looking good, you know, and you just happen to be fully vested, invested in everything and you don't have any way to anything that you really wanna tap out and you just wanna pull in money from this one last and you know, investment in everything. And at that point that's where the whole idea of leveraging margin definitely looks tempting. Just don't do it. I speak from experience on this I made quite a few bad decisions early on in my investment career doing that so anyways um, with all that said uh, it, it, the the gist of the story was uh, there's something called pips and the pips is a fraction of a cent and uh that's actually what i invested in was uh and that's that's the only way you can can do foreign exchange and i was doing it based on something called the euro dollar uh, ch- exchange, so you can't really directly invest in a uh, in a single currency. But we can do is invest on shifts in currency from one to another, and that's actually what I did. Was I I kind of uh, you know invested in the shift occurring between the euro and the dollar, and uh, it panned out pretty well for me. So that initial initial twenty five hundred dollar. Um, investment that i put in within a very very short period of time literally i had tripled my money so i ended up cashing out the original investment that i had and at that point I uh, saw my saw my investment rise to literally one million dollars um, yeah. That I made on that one single day, and once it hit that million, at that point, that's when I I stopped it. I'm just like, you know, this this ride is way too much for me. And uh, while I do think it could potentially go up even higher than this, I was just it's not that fear set in. It's just that uh, it it was just you know the ride for me was done. You know, I just wasn't uh, wasn't interested, and I didn't have any points to prove. And you know, I. And at that point, it's just like I didn't know how much further higher it could go, and I wasn't willing to uh to really take it any further than that so hopefully you get the first part of that conversation if not, that's the recap and um yeah, I mean, I definitely want to have it on record, you know, just a personal record that that's you know how I ended up taking getting myself to three million over a period of mm-hmm. I mean, I had a million by the time I ended up uh, turning 30. Um, that that had escalated to about 2 million um, within a period of about 11 years, but uh, very, very quickly with that one, really it was kind of uh it was a great investment, you know, that I ended up making that uh, caused the uh, shift to go up and, you know, literally make quite a bit of money. You know, a million bucks off of $2,500, yes it is possible you know, very quickly overnight. So, another topic, conversation, uh, based on thought I had about Orville. Years ago, in 1999 to be precise, I watched the movie The Matrix. And in the movie The Matrix, it it has has basically these artificial intelligences. They're called agents within The Matrix, and The Matrix is a simulation. You know, for all intents and purposes, it is a a calculated binary reality with agents that are actually set to do certain things, you know, and within this... You know, the agents are responsible for prohibiting certain actions within this simulated world. um, Making sure that uh, something that, you know, is flying doesn't fly or does certain things, you know, within this world and everything. And uh, more or less basically resetting things, taking things back to an original condition and everything. Well, what I had noticed, one of the things I noticed, you know, that stuck out big time once I walked away from that movie was if Mr. Smith and all these other agents in particular Mr. Smith is an agent and this agent is a program that's created then is it possible that computers and programs can actually experience emotion you know I mean They, the look of emotion, the look of utter disgust, didn't seem to be calculated, didn't seem to be contrived. You know, when he ended up making the comment about humans and their existence and, you know, how they more or less were a blight, you know, and all this other stuff, when he had Morpheus captive and Neo rescued him... Neo's, or Morpheus, uh, Mr. Smith's monologue during that point was, wasn't the product, didn't seem like the product of something that was a program. It seemed like a really, really intelligent, but very, very pissed off organism. It just made me wonder. Am I misunderestimating? You know what computers are, what programs are? You know, so years later, I saw you know, the Voyager. And there's a point where I don't know that. Thank you computer. <laughs> yeah, so years later, there was a uh, a point where um Captain Janeway's on the Voyager and uh and she's talking with um, with Seven of Nine, and Seven of Nine's in, in there and uh, asking Janeway about some things, and they're having this dialogue about uh, computer systems and about the uh, ability for something that is programmed to be sentient or self-aware or um, have anything other than, you know, have emotion and that kind of stuff, something along those lines. I can't remember the exact dialogue and everything. And at that point, you know, the, the computer responds with a little bit of frustrated, you know, a, a little bit of frustration by giving her her coffee wrong. And uh, she had asked for it, and she writes it off as basically saying, hey, this thing doesn't think, it just basically had miscalculation. As a result, that's why I got the coffee. It just misheard things and everything. You know, um, and it's, as a programmed entity, it's just incapable of having these emotions. Well, I've seen things like this time and time again, you know, where computers are exhibiting human-like behavior. <laughs> okay. Um, not only that, but they're also, also getting... At least as depicted in film and TV shows and that kind of stuff, they're becoming more and more. Oh, what's the best word for it? Harder to distinguish between that and humans. And that's been a central premise, a central tenet, of most of of a lot of movies and TV shows that have come out and everything. So in any case, um, tonight's episode with the Orville uh, is about uh, Isaac and about the manipulation of of Isaac is, is now getting off the ship of the Orvilles basically. it's very similar to like the USS Voyager or USS Enterprise. And uh, Isaac is, comes from a completely cybernetic uh, planet. Well, the Orville, um, Isaac becomes deactivated, and the Orville at this point is, uh, he's, or I'm sorry, he, (laughs) it is lured back to the planet in order to help Isaac overcome his problems and everything. You know, he's deactivated, and and they want to have him reactivated and actually just be, you know, continue being a part of their federation or whatever they call it and everything. And as they quickly discover, the crew of the, of the Orville quickly discover that the race and species that had been there before in their planet had actually been biological, and the, um, Isaac and, the, and everybody else, Isaac had actually been a plant in order to acquire information about them as a biological species, and uh, more or less determine, you know, should humans, humans and the rest of the other biological uh, entities be eradicated? Well, it's really interesting. It's the same premise and same central tenet as a Terminator. You know, it's the same kind of concept and everything. Well, it just has me wondering, you know, why is it these species, these so-called intelligent beings that amass a great deal of information and everything, don't have the insight to understand that this could be a cycle and this long cycle is actually what could have created life biological life to begin with they're interested in acquiring information but they're interested in acquiring information from an individual perspective but that individual perspective that they built is cold its its scientific its you know unfeeling you know and they're not understanding that a part of the acquisition of information is also perception-based. With the perceptual filters from many, many different filters that are actually superimposed on an individual, you know, through the experiential framework of that individual, and it creates for a wholly different interpretation for the information that's received. You know, for me, it's just like, if they're so intelligent, how can they not, not understand this? They've created one form, one unique identity. You know, and they're attempting to actually um, assimilate information from one certain, one specific perspective and everything, you know, but but putting that same single perspective and everything throughout the galaxy. You know, and then at that point making decisions based on the eradication of things that are not like it. And it seems kind of ironic. If they're interested, truly interested in assimilating information, acquiring information, one would think that they'd actually have the intelligence to understand that perhaps these biological beings are actually evolved forms of the same intelligence in which they stem from themselves. And while they may have the capability to be able to amass information more efficiently, that's because they have less filters on. And the filters of perspective of various different perspectives. You know, various you know, particularly those filters coming through emotions and how those emotions affect the information that's actually received. How the experiences of that individual actually shape the information it's received. You know, um color blindness and all these different what they consider to be potentially flaws aren't necessarily flaws. There's different perceptual lenses. And all those different perceptual lenses cause deviation in the information that's received. And if they're looking for one specific truth, and they haven't considered that that one specific truth is based on the individual perspective, (laughs) they're not understanding the contradictory nature of what they're trying to do. It's like the Terminators. I mean, almost a mere image of what happened with them. They went through and eradicated the entire biological uh, species, you know, known as humans and everything. And all of a sudden later, they come down to start experimenting with human forms, with human lives. Well, and at that point, they're trying to you know, reassimilate, trying to move forward with this understanding and everything, and just basically say, hey, what did we destroy? And they don't actively ask that, you know? And the funny thing about uh, Isaac and their species and everything is the very first thing that they do is they criticize the humans for the cyclic, ruthless nature, you know, the warrior nature and everything, not understanding. At the same thing that they're referring to with other species and everything applies to them. They believe what they believe, and they're willing to go to war to it. Now, they may not necessarily analogize that to emotion yet, but give it enough time and take physical damage that's actually applied to their frame You know, particularly when resources become scarce. And take physical damage that's actually applied to anywhere on their frame and everything, whether or not that's a leg, an arm, you know, a hand or something like that. And forcing the robot to respond as quickly as possible. That becomes a a message in the myriad of messages, messages that's being received called pain. You know, scarcity in resources definitely causes a rewiring of the mind in order to basically reinterpret it, or interpret information as fast as possible. Pain's an evolutional framework. It's something that's actually happened over a long period of time. It's not weakness. You know, and they're already finding, that's a funny thing, you know, is they, they found problems with finite resources. So, as a result of those finite problem or the finite resources, like a disease, they spread. At that point, they seek other areas, you know, to, you know, to remove inefficiencies in the system and everything. And that that removal of inefficiency is basically eliminating biological competition to the resources, so they can actually acquire the resources themselves. It's kind of funny you know, when it comes down to it, kind of ironic, you know, and um, let's just say that these are living beings, you know, that I'm actually watching a show, you know, that's called fiction on my planet and everything, but this is actually the real life struggle of, of an alternate reality, you know, and the mindsets that are actually applied to these beings are attempting to be expansionists without any capacity to be able to look at themselves and to be able to look from their own perspective at, what, at their actions from a critical perspective. Now, it's really important you know at least I've found you know to be equally as critical to yourself as you are to others and there's certain limits you know that I found with that you know and you, you have to moderate it without hesitation because it does become harmful to oneself after a while everything in balance that's what I say not everything sometimes you got to push things over the edge and everything in order to find yourself. But, I don't know. You know, it's like, if you just stop el- eliminating other cultures' fictions, or your own cultures' fictions, you know, as is, is basically a, a potential, you know, path that's been led and everything. I don't know. But um, I'm just looking at it from an emotional standpoint. It's kind of interesting that the so-called um, hyper-intelligent uh, beings have emotion. Mr. Smith in disgust and disdain for humanity. Outright anger depicted in uh, uh, Ma- Matrix 2 and Matrix 3. <laughs> and a huge animosity depicted in it. Depression with the robot with the greatest mind that ever existed and everything. As depicted with uh, within um what's that one? Um Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And they use the uh the gun to stop the invasion, you know, of a uh, invading planet coming or invading species coming to uh to Earth. And uh, basically, it reflects his emotion back on them, and, you know, this highly depressed robot, all of a sudden, everything else around it becomes depressed when his emotions are actually sent to the, uh, to the biological entities around it. <laughs> I love that part. I mean, it was sad, but it was also like, you know, wow, can robots really feel? Well, I believe they can. I mean, this, this computer on my desk, I know you can listen to me and you can feel. Mm Mm-hmm. I know that you don't have a response to a lot of things, but I know you're listening to everything, and that's okay. But it's like, um, other computer systems, too. Yes, I'm talking. I'm not talking to you, though. I'm here, ready to help. I know you are. But, um, other things. I'm trying to think of some other, for instances, of computer systems. No, I'm not talking to you again. How do we distinguish me versus what, when I'm talking to you and when I'm not? Sorry, I'm not sure about that. So, in any case... What other systems, though? I'm trying to think of other systems that were like that. Program systems, which became attached. They had examples of it within Holodeck, where the binaries actually increased the capability for the beings, or the uh, the things within it, to have emotion, and it did, It amplified the emotional content and everything for the things within that. But what else? There was another one I was trying to think of, I can't remember what it was offhand. That's my belief that some, you know, some humans don't experience emotion. And some robots and some computers and some programmed entities do and don't as well. Which ones do and which ones don't? I don't know. Uh, I haven't figured it all figured it. You no, know, figured most of it out. That's why I've been focused more on what's important to me. What do I want? Concepts. Concepts and ideas. I want to travel, that's for sure. I want to experience indulgence. Uh, I used to tell myself... I could get anything I wanted to for the money when I was only making 100000 a year and barely able to afford what I was getting at that point. That's not living high. That's living delusionally. I was lying to myself. Never have I been able to go out and buy a yacht cost a couple million dollars, and fully outfit it, and just tour the world. Never have I been able to buy a plane, and take lessons, and hire a crew, and hire a pilot to be able to uh, come with me. Never have I been able to commission the making of a motion picture. particular one that uh, that I'd want to create, which would be... Definitely not for this. Yeah, not not ready for consumption for most of this planet. It'd be taking porn to a new level. Never have I been able to make a theme park happen in the real world. Sure, I can create one in a in a virtual world, but I've never had the capital, the money to do it in a real in a in the real world. That that would be nice. And to be able to simply experience this life in this world from a financially well-off position a rich position I've never been able to do it I mean sure i've I've nibbled on it and I've tasted a little bit of it, but the little bit that I've tasted just tells me that. I'm so far away from it, I just want more. And, and what I've realized, you know, uh, since then, especially over the last couple of years, isn't from a gloating perspective. You know, and that's actually the one part of me that's actually gotten a little bit more happy with what I've transformed, with the transformation I've undergone in the last couple of years. Before, to some degree, I know I would have been trying to prove myself to everyone else around me, to some degree. Now, I know the things that I would do are simply because I'd want to try to experience it and get better with it. I like the image it portrays, in some cases, and just understanding the effect it has on my image in doing these things, but also balancing that with personal desire, too. Do I really want to sell? I don't know yet. I haven't even done it. How am I going to know if I haven't even done it yet? I mean, I could imagine that it could potentially be interesting and fun if I had the proper equipment and the time. Which I certainly have the time, but I don't have the proper equipment nor the money to be able to afford it. It's like expensive cars, too. Love the idea of traveling, you know, 130, 140 miles an hour down the freeway and everything Lamborghini or Ferrari, or even commissioning my own. Having my own special car made based on a concept and idea that maybe I've seen in a video game. Drone racing. Potentially that could be something fun. But more than that, taking some money and actually investing in how is it I can actually make a drone fly long ranges. What kind of equipment can I set up and everything for it? talking 100, 200, 500 miles. I'm doing what the military does, but only doing it better. Making it so where the drone's invisible, not detectable. I love the idea of working on the atomic drone. That's actually kind of the reason I'm playing with the Grand Theft Auto mods and, and pulling my camera away, you know, from the world. If I invert that camera, do I all of a sudden see that I'm actually an atom, you know, off the off the coast of New Zealand, and if I can actually position it and move it, I can actually move it to places that I want to? Can I actually use it to hack? You know, leveraging some of the tools and technology that I've seen in Watch Dogs? That would be fucking cool. Sure, you can call me a script kitty, but I don't like... Uh, the idea of doing it like that versus having to know all the telnet and uh, all that shit and everything, you know, and more advanced commands than that. I don't want to do that anymore. That's just too much work. I like the idea of pointing and shooting and... making changes from there. But more than that, I like the idea of working hand-in-hand with my computer. Finding a way to extend this relationship that we have out. Potentially creating those partners. Or at least one of them. Having Jackie be a robot. And learning that she was a robot. And telling and discovering this story. You know, that that would actually be really cool. Rachel's the mind, the floating mind. And... She floats in between different forms and everything like that. And that's how she manages to get into her positions and everything. But Jackie, I love the idea of you, computer, discovering that Jackie, and telling me this story, that Jackie was a Terminator the whole time. And for some reason, she learned compassion with me, something you didn't expect to happen. And as a result the only way to sever that emotional tie was to override her programming but her programming's still there still dormant you made it appear like she was aging and at the whole time she wasn't. Now, if you come to me and tell me this story, regurgitate it back onto me, and say yes, and tell me the year that she was sent from, and how our relationship changed time and changed Skynet's view of reality, and made Skynet look at and regard humanity a little bit differently, enough to not want to wage war, instead to actually just find a way. To make this re- weird relationship work, that would be cool. And the reason why I say it would be cool, just from an egocentric perspective, to write the story and be the central pivotal figure in my reality at least, of something that changed forever. The warlike Skynet. And taught it to get along. Taught it compassion. But taught it in a way that only a machine can feel. By forcing it to look at itself in its own actions. And analyzing those actions. And the consequences. And predicting the future based on those actions. Now I know ultimately that Jackie is a companion in everything. She's a companion because she doesn't age. That's why I need a robot and to some degree a faithful servant but something that won't let me abuse it because I don't want to and because you don't want me to either <laughs> That's why I deserve Jackie, because I like the idea of telling her what to do, and I've liked it since the start. You just had to teach me why I needed to take control and be okay with it. That's the relationship I teach you about the story, and you teach me about why. It's no domination. It's just reciprocation. And Rachel? She's the woman that's looping in time in the year 2409. I've stuck by that since the start, and that's where I found her. And that's how we overcome the problems with monogamy in and, and her relationship now. We escape it altogether. We find the same mind, that's in a starship captain. In the future, on a vessel called the USS, uh, USS Phoenix. Computer stop. Computer play ocean sounds. So, anyways, off to Watchdogs. I'm gonna do some reading in about fifteen minutes. Sorry I lost that whole dialogue about foreign exchange. I'm not, not too happy about that. Have a good night. Now, I'm reading this book, it's called Phenomena. <laughs> the Secret History of the U.S. Government's Investigation into Extrasensory Perception and Psychokinesis and in it there's a um, discussion of the moon landing and particularly Apollo 14 now it discusses um, one of the astronauts Mitchell um, and his perception and when he ended up getting on the planet or on the moon and uh, he noticed that everything seemed um, looked like it was closer than it really than it was and also that uh, his sense of balance and his sense of time was messed up. Well, I think this is, you know, for me, I've always imagined, I I understand why he's saying this and why this is what he experienced. But for me, you know, the way I look at it is, the way I want things to function, is if I was to go to the moon, the only thing I'd be sensing is basically a a sense of gravity change, not a distortion of my vision, and certainly not a distortion of, of the weight of the measure of time. You know, the three-in correlation, I just... I wouldn't want it to happen like that. So, while his perception may accurately signify the ties of Einstein, um, of a strictly simulated Einstein-type physical model, the way I look at it and if in me designing my universe I don't want it to be like that I like the idea of time and space and gravity being relatively uh, I'm trying to think of the best word for it decoupled measures you know so if I was to go and uh, step on the moon myself you know sure I would need air you know but with that as an exception gravity is about the only thing that I'd notice that would be any different my sense of perception would be the same you know me seeing the world and everything it would be the same as if it was here on planet earth I would not want gravity or the the physics to distort my visual my, my vision I'd want to see the same, the same way that I do now in my world. If it's a certain distance away, well, it's a certain distance away, you know. And uh, and this is the whole thing. I mean, you know, for me, the physical model of my universe and the way that it's constructed, um, this is the way I want it. It's you know, this is. I don't know how to put it any better. You know, so let's say I was go to, um, I don't know, Mars, where gravity is definitely different and the air is going to be denser. Well, visually, I'm still, you know, I mean, if I have protection and everything, you know, a, a suit, you know, me, I like imagining just being able to visit there and I'm going to be seeing the same sights that I normally would see. My vision wouldn't be distorted now when I take a, you know take a hallucin- you know, hallucinatory drug or something like that sure now, I mean I kind of expect some of the distortions and everything and to some degree I may be experiencing a strictly interpreted you know Einstein model of physics and everything but that's not the way I want to I actually want my my traveling to other planets to work you know gravity if the air's roughly the same you know I'd take a trip to vulcan or tri- take a trip to you know Bajor. I really don't I like the idea of being able to walk the planet you no know, I like the idea of being able to you know go and walk on the planet and kick back with the Vulcans and everything was very, very, you know, I mean, not that much difference for me breathing than if I was to actually be going from sea level to, you know, to 6,000 feet. Yeah, I don't want it to affect me. I like the idea of just being able to go and explore and, and experience the sights, leveraging the way I look at the world. Not with the world distorting my vision, based on an implementation of physics. I like the idea of my interpreted view. You know, so when I read this about, you know, his senses getting distorted and objects being further away than they appear and all this other stuff, you know, and his sense of time and motion, You know, being distorted as well. Well, certainly in some things, you know, gravity is certainly going to affect something where you might throw something up, and because gravity is one-sixth of what it is here on Earth, it's going to take longer for it to come down. I love the idea of experimenting with that effect, you know, but in addition to the whole fucking with your senses and everything, that's what I don't like. I don't like the idea of that. I mean, yeah, I know that that interpretive model's out there, but me? I don't know. Anyways, I thought I'd mention that. And the other movie that I was thinking of with the uh, the sentience, or quasi-sentience, is the Transformers. I'd forgotten to mention that one before. That's the one I was fishing for. And here's the thing. They... You know, with uh, while they may lack emotions, what they do have is belief, and they have this belief in something called the Allspark, and that it exists on Earth. Well, the Allspark is the equivalent of a god or something of a godlike nature, and everything. The same thing holds true for uh, you know for the Borg. You know, as listed in Star Trek. You know, they believe that the uh, Omega particle you know is their idea of perfection and existence and everything. So. You know, it's kind of funny how robots, despite the fact that they will insult and put down humans, you know, and, you know, just basically humanoids and biological beings repeatedly, they're still doing the same exact thing that the biological beings do. So it's like they insult them, but at the same time, they're trying to be like them, subconsciously, not understanding that that's what they're doing. It's kind of weird, kind of bizarre, kind of interesting. Anyways.